All right. This morning we're in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We will be in uh, Acts 6 starting verse 8 all the way through chapter 6 and all the way through chapter 7. We have a large section of scripture to cover. It all holds together. It's the story of Stephen. But I will plan to read most of it but summarize much of it. With that, as we open up to the book of Acts, um, what is Acts about? Acts is the continual ministry of Jesus Christ as he has risen and ascended, has poured out his Holy Spirit to the church for the continual gospel ministry to go forth through the apostles. And what we see in the book of Acts is as the gospel increases and spreads, so does persecution. The gospel, it's the good news that the Messiah has finally arrived to take care of the sins of his people. And that is what's spreading. But with that is opposition. And that's what we will see this morning in our story. So let me pray for us and we'll dive in. So Father, I pray, Lord, um, open our ears, open our hearts, our minds, help us to receive your word. I pray that we would grow in greater understanding of the scriptures that would lead to greater understanding of you, your love, your grace, your plan of salvation. Pray that you would overcome in our hearts, our minds, any obstacles to receiving what you have for us. So I pray that you would give us uh, just a great uh, and deepening understanding of who you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. I'll go 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and those of Cilician Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Okay, let's pause there and ask, why is there an angry mob surrounding Stephen? What's going on? Well, as I mentioned, the gospel is spreading. The good news that the Messiah is here to rescue sinners. Recall that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus promised his disciples, Luke records this, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And what we find is the Spirit has indeed come upon them. That's Acts chapter 2. And so Jesus' disciples are proclaiming to everyone that Jesus is the risen Savior. Calling people to repent and believe, to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. The gospel is spreading in Jerusalem, just as Jesus said it would. And as this account takes place in Jerusalem, thousands of people are coming to faith 
in Christ. Stephen is part of the spread of the gospel in Jerusalem. Luke describes Stephen as full of grace and power, doing wonders and signs among the people. That phrase, wonders and signs, we'll see it in other places in the scriptures. It's attributed to Jesus. It's attributed to his apostles. And now Luke attributes it to Stephen to say, this is God's way of saying, Stephen's legit. He is of me. I have sent him as my witness. But the mob from the synagogue doesn't quite see it this way. They are very concerned because what they see in Jesus and his apostles, what they see is a threat to their established religion. Specifically, the threat of their temple and their law. And this can be summarized really well in verse 14. They say, For we have heard him say, Stephen say, that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, meaning the temple, and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So their accusation focuses on two things that they hold as sacred the law given to Moses and the temple. So, how is Jesus and his followers a threat to the law and the temple? Well, regarding the law, if you recall Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, when he began his public ministry, if you recall, he went up on a mountain and he started teaching the people the scriptures. And what he said is, he repeated this, you have heard it said, and then he would, just, he would give the teaching that the religious leaders of the day were giving, and then he'd say, but I say to you, would give the correct interpretation as if he was speaking with the authority of God. That was unsettling to the religious rulers. Next, regarding the temple, Jesus said, destroy this temple, meaning the physical temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So Jesus was referring to his body, the cross and resurrection. And then Jesus went on at one point in the gospels to say, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus was referring to himself. So, this is blasphemy to the religious rulers of the day because they understand the temple as the holy place. It is the place where God dwells with his people, with them. It is their place of worship. But the apostles and Stephen, what they are proclaiming is that Jesus is the true temple. In Jesus, God dwells with us. In Jesus, there is a once-for-all sacrifice for sin that the temple could never accomplish. Jesus has fulfilled the role of the temple and is worthy of all worship, is what they're proclaiming. Blasphemy in the mob's ears. And so they're disputing with Stephen. Luke tells us in verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. So what do they do? They play dirty. They secretly instigate some men to accuse Stephen of blasphemy. This is incredibly serious because if you're found guilty of blasphemy, it's punishable by death, namely being stoned, right? So, this gets very serious. But Luke adds, you know, Stephen is brought before the human court, uh, the religious uh, leader's court of the day, known as the Sanhedrin. But Luke adds that his face 
was like that of an angel. In other words, God is with him. And if you recall, Jesus' promise to his disciples, we see this in Luke chapter 11. And when they bring you before the synagogue and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And we'll see that promise of Jesus to his apostles come to fruition in Stephen's speech. Now, in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest, Stephen is before the court, the high priest says, are these things so? Are these accusations true? And what Stephen does here is fascinating. If I can say it this way, Stephen becomes a pole vault coach. Make sense? Probably not, so let me explain it. But in order to do it justice, we're going to pole vault together, obviously, in our minds this morning. So, we are on a runway. The pit is in front of us. We are ready to go. We have the pole in our hand. So we start running down the runway as fast as we can. When we get to the end, our last step, we plant the pole in the ground, and then we jump, we drive our knee as hard as we can, we go, we lift off into the air, the pole begins to bend. Then we get into a tucked position, and when the pole straightens out, we bring our, our feet above our head in a tucked position. We start to shoot upward feet first. The pole extends, and so we end up going over and clearing the bar, feet first, then waist, then chest. We come down, we fall onto the mat. It is a jump of glory. Did you enjoy it? Wasn't that great? Now let me explain most of my jumps in high school. These were called jumps of destruction. Okay, same thing. We're on the approach. We run as fast as we can. We plant the pole. Our feet lift off the ground. We drive our knee. We get into a tucked position. The pole bends, and then when it begins to straighten, instead of shooting upward, we think, wait, hold on. I don't have enough speed not only to make it over the bar, but even to make it to the mat. So at this point, you're in the area, you have two decisions. One is you can let go and let God, but I don't advise that because you won't make it to the mat and there's concrete below. So your other option is to hang on to the pole. It will start to go backwards. You're up fairly high in the air, but you just ride the pole back down and do what I call a hit and roll. It is in order to absorb the shock to not break your ankles, the minute your feet hit the ground, you go into a roll onto the ground, you pop up. I was fantastic at the hit and roll. I perfected it. Okay, what, were the, what was the difference in those two jumps? Here's the point. It's all about the approach. I had 22 steps. If any of my steps were off, then my last step would be off. And if that's off, the whole jump is off, leading to a jump of destruction. So think of the Old Testament as the runway leading to glory. In other words, leading to Jesus. Think of Stephen as a pole vault, uh, pole vault coach who is going to retrace the steps because you have to understand this. My coach, after my jumps of destruction, would come down and point out my steps and say, here's where you missed. Here's where you missed. Here's where you missed. So this is what Stephen's going to do. It's going to go to the mob and say, you missed steps along the way in God's plan of salvation, and it's leading you to a jump of destruction. So Stephen retraces the steps 
in God's plan of salvation. And he begins all the way back in Genesis with Abraham, who was the father of their nation. So we have this in chapter 7, verse 2. And what we're going to see is the first theme. There's two major themes that emerge in our passage. The first theme is that it's all about the temple. Stephen's going to make the point that they put all their faith in their temple. But God is not bound to the temple, and you cannot box God in. So, verse 2. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that the offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and inflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place, meaning Jerusalem. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the 12 patriarchs. So, notice the tone. Stephen does not begin with, you bunch of idiots, right? No, he begins with, brothers and fathers, hear me. It's a respectful tone. He's pleading with them. And what Stephen does here is he begins to address the the accusation that he's hating on the temple, so to speak. So from the mob's perspective, if the temple is destroyed, then God will no longer dwell with them. That's his place to dwell But in Stephen's point of view, he says this in verse 2. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Meaning, God's presence was with Abraham before they entered the promised land and before this temple ever existed. And Stephen goes on to talk about the Israelites being oppressed in Egypt. And this point is the same. That God was present with the Israelites outside of the promised land while they were in Egypt and before the temple ever existed. In other words, God is not bound by the temple. You cannot box him in. The temple was never intended to be the, the permanent dwelling place of God with his people. The temple pointed to someone greater. So Stephen is saying, your first step is off. You think it's about this man-made temple of bricks and mortar, but it's actually about flesh. One greater than the temple, God himself, Jesus, has come in the flesh to fulfill the role of the temple. Your first step is off, and it is leading you to a jump of destruction. Now, Stephen goes on in verse 9 through 16. The focus goes from Abraham to Joseph. Joseph If you recall in Genesis, the last 14 books uh, or chapters in Genesis are devoted to Joseph. He's a key figure. Don't have time to cover everything about Joseph. But as I read this section again, the question is, what did they miss? Because already we have one theme established, and that is their, their misunderstanding of the temple. 
But now a second theme emerges, and the theme is this, or the question is this. What happens to the leaders that God sends to rescue his people? Look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, okay, to understand patriarchs, just think in terms of the descendants of Abraham. These would be the 12 tribes, right? They're brothers. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, meaning into slavery, and God, but God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all of his household. Let me just stop there to say, what is at the heart of this? What's going on? There's a lot of history here, but to get at the heart of it, what Stephen wants them to get is not only was God with Joseph in Egypt, again, outside of the promised land and before the temple existed, but the second theme, this pattern of rejection. What happens to the leaders, the mediators, you could say, that God raises up and sends to his people? Verse 9, we see it. They become jealous. They were jealous of Joseph, sold him. They rejected him. Stephen's making the point. Our fathers did it to Joseph. And in this next section, he's going to show how they did it to Moses as well. And his point is, do you see that your approach is off? This pattern of rejecting God's chosen leaders will lead you away from glory into destruction. So let's move on to verses 17 through 43. Now Stephen is going to focus on Moses, right? There have been some that have claimed that Stephen was just kind of rambling, a deep study of this. Oh, it's brilliant, his argumentation of what God is doing through the Holy Spirit as Stephen argues his points. And we see this as he focuses on Moses. Now, this section with Moses is the longest section. Part of this is they were accusing Stephen, Stephen of hating on Moses So Stephen's like, hey, you want to talk Moses? Let's talk Moses. So, verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, again, this promise of God's blessing of descendants, that even though they would be uh, enslaved in Egypt, God would fulfill his promise, would bring them into a promised land. Okay. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham... The people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him, brought him up as her own son Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Pause. Notice how positive Stephen is towards Moses, right? He was beautiful in God's sight, verse 20. Verse 22, he's mighty in words and deeds. Okay, look at verse 23. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, In seeing that one of them was being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed, this is a key verse, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. 
And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Pause, by the way. God did, right? Verse 28. Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Okay, again, a lot of history here, but notice the theme. God raised up Moses to rescue his people, but they rejected him. And again, verse 25 is key. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Stephen is building this case. It's like he's saying, hey, this is you. God has given the way of salvation, not through the temple, but by his son, Jesus. The, temp the temple was temporary and it pointed to Christ. But you do not understand. Your steps are off, leading you to a jump of destruction, but you don't understand it and you don't see it. Stephen's pleading with them. Now, years ago, I was watching one of my son's uh, baseball games and I was standing behind home plate, you know, judging if they were balls and strikes, what dads do sometimes, right? And so I'm behind the fence and a foul ball is hit and it goes over the fence and it's going to the side of me a little bit behind me. And I, I don't know what you do in those moments, but I always look up and then I look down to where the ball is heading. And what I see is the ball is heading straight for a group of girls, like five-year-old girls all sitting in a circle, giggling and laughing, oblivious to what is coming their way. And so I, being the good Samaritan, run as fast as I can to rescue them. So I take off and I'm looking up at the ball and I'm looking at them, looking at the ball, looking at them, making my way, get there as fast as I can. And I actually get there right as the ball is about to hit a little girl on the head. So I run through the circle and I catch the ball right there. Now, the, <laughs> that's funny. The, um, the girl is oblivious to what just happened, but the parents aren't because the parents all start cheering for me. And I'm like, wow, that feels good. I feel heroic. I start walking back to the bleachers with some swag but I just happen to look back at the group of girls. And I see the girl that was going to get hit by the baseball with a huge frowny face pointing her finger at me and telling her little tea party, that man tried to hurt me. I'm like, what? Little tea party girl, I just rescued your life. You had a ball of fire coming to end you, right? Maybe a little dramatic. I'm like, I did that out of love, and you are completely rejecting me. That's what's happening here, Stephen, desperately. It's a little different. <laughs> yeah. Stephen desperately wants the mob to see it. <laughs> you guys are throwing me off. You're not supposed to... <laughs> Stephen desperately wants the mob to see and understand the grace and love of God. Because think about what happened. Repeatedly, God's people sinned against him. Repeatedly, God sends chosen ones to rescue them. 
and repeatedly they reject God's chosen ones, which is a rejection of God himself. Unfortunately, this pattern continues in our own day, right? You may not have an angry mob surrounding you, but let's just think about this week, Thanksgiving week. You may be gathered with others, and those others may not have ever bowed their knees or their hearts to the risen Lord Jesus. And what do we do in those moments? What do we do? Say we pray for them, but we don't stop there. We pray for opportunity to be able to share the good news of the gospel with them, whether it's the beginning of a conversation or the whole conversation, we pray for them, we pray for opportunity, and if the time comes and the opportunity is presented, and in my experience, when I pray that, God oftentimes answers that prayer. So when the opportunity comes, we open our mouth. It's not to shove more turkey in it. We open our mouth and we trust that God can change hearts and that God can give us the words. Let's pick back up. Verse 35. We're going to see this pattern of rejection continue. Now, pay attention to the words this. Okay? Verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give us, meaning the law. Okay, Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Malak and the star of your God, Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Okay. This is loaded. Let me just, um, let's, we got to understand, we got to go back a little bit. In the very beginning, when the mob was accusing Stephen, they, said, they referred to Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, and they did it with scorn. What Moses is doing, he is now going to talk about how they rejected this Moses. But his point is going to be, this Moses actually should have pointed you beyond himself to a savior. So, says this. It says, look what your fathers did. God sent Moses, but they rejected him. You're in danger of the same pattern. This Moses was sent to deliver God's afflicted people from oppression. This Moses, whom they rejected, God sent as a ruler and redeemer. That word redeemer means to buy back. That points to Jesus. 
This Moses performed wonders and signs like Jesus. And then this quote. This Moses said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. That directly points to Jesus. Stephen's warning them, your steps are off. You're repeating the pattern of rejecting God's chosen ones. You are heading towards a jump of destruction. Second point here, when they rejected God, what happens? So they reject, and then what's the result? Their hearts turn to idols. He says in verse 39, our, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. So they made a calf. Verse 41 goes on to say, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. And then he quotes Amos to say, oh, they were making sacrifices all right in the temple, but they were worshiping idols as opposed to the one true God. They were worshiping Moloch and Rephon and the images, and God turned away from them. So, for those in the mob who, has, who have ears to hear, Stephen is saying, you're in danger. Consider your steps. The pattern of rejecting God's chosen one. And you've also made an idol out of the temple, which is man-made. You think that you can have the temple and be safe. You think you can make your sacrifices in the temple and be safe. But you've rejected the ultimate way of salvation. You've, you've rejected the ultimate sacrifice, and that is Jesus on the cross. In verses 44 through 50, Stephen's going to finish his speech, and he returns to the topic of the temple. Verse 44: Our fathers had the tent of wilderness in the uh, the tent of witness in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it with Joseph or Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. And verse 48 is key. Yet the Most High does not dwell... In houses made by hands, as the prophet says, now he's quoting Isaiah, heaven is my throne and, Isaiah, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? So what Stephen does is he gives them a history of God dwelling with his people beginning with the tabernacle. Think of the tabernacle as a portable sanctuary, a portable temple. And then he moves on to talk about the temple that was built under King Solomon, David's son. But the point becomes really clear in verse 48. It says, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. And then he quotes Isaiah 66 to make the point that the prophet Isaiah understood that very reality that they missed, that God is not bound to their man-made temple. They cannot box him in. The temple pointed to someone who was greater. 
So Stephen, just think about this whole story before we conclude. Here's what Stephen has done. He's retraced their steps, starting with Abraham, showing them the God of glory was alive and well and with Abraham before the temple ever existed. And he promised to dwell with his people. And that dwelling would go far beyond that physical temple. It pointed to Jesus. And then the other theme Stephen shows is the repeating pattern of God sending chosen ones to rescue them, but they reject them. We saw it with Joseph, and then we saw it with Moses. And in case they missed the point, verses 51 through 53 make it excruciatingly clear. Verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The gloves are off at this point. Stephen is saying, like fathers, like son. Your fathers rejected Joseph and Moses and also the prophets. And now you are following in their footsteps. You were jealous and rejected Jesus, the righteous one. You're also doing this to the apostles. And now you are doing it to me. You've missed it. You're repeating the same steps and they're leading you towards destruction. So what do we do with this? Especially in a culture um, where pressure to conform to the world around us increases. Beyond that, persecution. We live in that kind of culture. It's only going to increase. What do we do? There are only two paths. There are two jumps. One leads to glory and the other to destruction. The path to glory understands that the Old Testament pointed to a Messiah, a Savior, and that would be the only hope of salvation. And that Messiah is Jesus, whom Stephen refers to as the Righteous One. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53, also referred to this righteous one who was to come. And let me just quote parts of Isaiah 53. This righteous one would be despised and rejected by men, be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He would be an offering for sin, but would make many righteous in God's sight. This is fulfilled in Christ at the cross. This is what Stephen's audience needed to see and understand. That Jesus is the true temple they needed. In Jesus, there is a once-for-all sacrifice for sin that the temple could never accomplish. It was accomplished at the cross. And this is what we need to understand. Jesus is our only hope for salvation. Our only hope for glory. It is at the cross for those who believe and trust in Christ, that our sin was transferred to Christ, his righteousness transferred to us 
is the only way to spend eternity with the holy God is to have our sins taken care of. That was Jesus' horrible sacrifice on a cross. Stephen pleaded with his audience, as I plead with you, do not reject him. It is possible to have sat in a church your whole life and still reject him. Do you love him? Do not reject him. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I want you to notice three last things. Notice that Stephen is in front of an earthly human religious court. But God, you know, opens up the veil, so to speak, to where Stephen sees the heavenly court. You could say the heavenly temple. And what does Stephen see? He sees the glory of God. And he sees Jesus, who he refers to as the Son of Man. And that phrase, that Son of Man, is so important. Because Daniel 7 talks about this Son of Man. Jesus would often refer to himself as the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. And here it is. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Don't miss this. Stephen is in front of this human court with a human temple nearby. That temple is going to be destroyed. Stephen is gazing into heaven and he sees the heavenly court. And he sees a kingdom that will never end. And he sees the glory of God. That is what awaits him. What he also sees is the Son of Man, Jesus, standing. Often in the scriptures, when it refers to Jesus as the right hand of God, it is that Jesus is sitting, but he is standing here. Why is he standing? Likely it's for one of two reasons, but probably both. He is standing as a witness would stand to defend someone who holds fast to him. He's defending Stephen, who is holding fast to him. And also this, likely standing to receive into his kingdom the first martyr. And notice this, in the face of death, Stephen is calm and even follows in the footstep of his master, the Lord Jesus, who at the cross entrusted himself to his heavenly father and prayed for the forgiveness of his enemies. The only way that we can be truly calm in the face of a death. And just imagine this. Imagine how gruesome, 
horrifying this would be, the only way to stay calm, the only way to have this kind of bold love, the only way to truly love enemies is to know this, that Jesus is who he said he is. He really is the Son of Man. He really is the righteous one. He is standing at the right hand of the Father, and he is ready to receive us upon our death, however it comes. That is the only way to have hope in this world and to live with a testimony that Stephen lived and died by. Stephen is pleading with them to see it, to understand it, this love and this grace of God. And this morning, do we see it? Do we understand it? Because it's right in front of us. It's ordinary bread, wine and juice. It's ordinary. But what does it look past? What does it point to? It points to the body of Christ that was given for us on the cross. It points to the blood of Christ that was shed for us on the cross. And why? Out of love. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he poured it. He said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul adds, as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This time I would invite those who are serving to come forward and let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks for the beauty of your scriptures that as we retrace the steps, we see the glory of your temple, but it it pointed to someone more glorious. So thank you for Jesus Thank you that the temple was a place where you dwell, but we see Jesus who came to dwell and not only that, poured out the Holy Spirit for us. And we see Jesus himself in his atonement. We see him dealing with our sin because in and of ourselves, we would have no hope. So we give you thanks. And we pray, Lord, that you would meet us at this table in a way that strengthens our faith. Grow us in the knowledge of your glorious grace. Give us a hope that will sustain us. Pray that you would take this bread, this juice, set it apart in such a way that we know that you are with us. May you be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.